Hi, this is Better Read Than Dead, a literature podcast from a left perspective. I'm Megan. I'm Tristan. I'm Katie. And today we are wrapping up Middlemarch, thank God, which is <laughs> George Eliot's literal 800-page realist novel published in eight volumes in 1871 and 1872 about literally everything, marriage, <laughs> class, bourgeoisification, finding meaning in industrial modernity and, and politics and, and history and gender and all the stuff. <laughs> So what did we think of the second half, Tristan? Yeah, so uh, I mean, I am not going to deny that this is a very long novel. Um, I will say, uh, you know, Clarissa is twice as long and not as fun. So <laughs> but, yeah. no. Um, if we're using Clarissa as a measuring <laughs> stick, Clarissa is now our, our benchmark. Yeah, but the mountain lion is a quarter as long and way more fun. <laughs> it it this did take a while to read, but I was kind of blown away by the whole thing. Um, and and that that seems silly to say, given its stature in British literature, like oh shucks, Moby Dick's a good book, you know, like you know, <laughs> tell your no, friends, <laughs> yeah, like oh yeah, no no shit, you figured that all all by your own, uh, you know. And, and yes, I mean, I knew there was obviously a reason Victorianists think so highly of of this, um, and not just Victorianists. I mean, this is a book that does still like popularly get read by by a lot of people. I think particularly in the UK. But but in the U.S. as well, and yeah, I mean, Elliot is this genius in the realist tradition. I, I knew that, but there were still a couple of things that really struck me. One, and I touched on this a bit last week, is the sociality of the novel. It's a realist novel. We expect it to do that realist thing of giving us a full accounting of a protagonist's interiority that looks like we imagine real people in the world possessing. I mean, that familiar 18th century narrative I've talked about a ton. But there are at least three and probably like six central characters that Middlemarch does that with. Um, mm. I, I'm obviously not saying that other realist novels don't take on multiple perspectives. You know, okay, hi, you know, high free indirect discourse. But still, this novel does seem as committed to exploring the social connections between characters as it is to character itself. In a way that's really impressive and, and I thought pretty cool. Yeah. Relatedly, I definitely appreciate how Elliot thinks about history. It's very much a development of the Walter Scott perspective that Lou Koch identified as proto-Marxist. So like history is this massive force, no great man theory, but really, you know, the site of class struggle, um, often at a scale that's beyond the perception of individuals in the day to day, but that nonetheless shapes all of our lives in, in profound ways. And again, cool. Uh, you know, George Eliot, you you sure were a lib, but you were thinking of the right direction and, and one that uh, <laughs> one that Uncle Carl was was to um, just as an aside, I do. I mean, like Elliot is working on this as Marx is kind of wrapping up the first volume of Capital, which I just I, I mean. They're like, I have not tried to force a connection here other than I, I just, there's something cool about that to me. Imagine them in a Zoom writing group together. (laughs) I mean, the thing is like, Elliot could totally have wandered into the, you know, British Museum library and seen fucking, you know, Marks like spilling coffee all (laughs) over his face. Like that could, that is a scene that very much could have fucking happened. And and I would love for that to have been the case. And, you know, so she, you know, she also, another great thing, she flips the script on on bourgeois marriage in the English novel. Um, I've I've talked about this before, this, this claim I remember someone making that the English novel ends with a marriage and the French novel starts with a marriage falling apart. After trying to figure out who said that first, 
for years, I finally have come to the conclusion that it is my former dissertation director summarizing somewhat flippantly Tony Tanner's argument in, in Adultery of the Novel. But it, it's kind of true, except in Middlemarch, we we do the French novel thing, if we want to call it that. And we don't have marriage as a telos, but rather as this kind of process, a struggle toward mutual understanding that can often go very awry. And just, yeah, skepticism towards the bourgeois family structure. That's pretty dope to find in a Victorian novel, and I'm definitely here for it. Mm-hmm. Round of applause. I like people who don't want to have children. <laughs> I mean, I don't. Well, I do, but I. I mean, in, in Victorian novels. Yeah, no, and I mean, I as as a parent and and, and somewhat happily married myself, not thinking of it as this like for like you must do this and yeah, like that's what something I mean, exactly. aberrant if you don't. And and I mean, you know, like that is that is some Victorian bullshit. Our popular culture still one hundred percent tries to do to people. You know. Oh, absolutely. Well, and it's like they're all they all have to be like love marriages and and it's like after to bourgeoisification yeah and and it's yes and basically i mean it's it's the ideology of the nuclear family which is fucking capitalist nonsense you know no love marriages i just want to say don't marry someone that you love this is just a psa (laughs) marry your enemy marry an antagonist because you will hustle and grind so much harder out of spite that way you will achieve heights. Your sneaker company, mm-hmm. your um, your skincare line, all of it. Yeah, well, I, I am honestly surprised some Silicon Valley shithead has not published that as a series. <laughs> how, to, <laughs> how to hate your wife? A podcast. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. By Elon Musk and his eight children. <laughs> not a bad idea. So I finished this because I was required by obligation to my friends. <laughs> and I, but I've been like having wonderful conversations with my students about you can get a novel and not like a novel. And that is how I feel about this. I get it. It's very important. I understand that it's wonderful. But I did not have that like gut punch reaction I did with. Wuthering Heights, where I was yeah. like, "Holy shit, is this good?" No, like, and totally fair. And I mean, honestly, I like, I do really like this novel. I can't say that it's one that I'm going to read again. Whereas right. um, Wuthering Heights, I guess I like tomorrow if I if need be. You know? Oh, for sure. I mean, I did like the miniseries quite a bit. I feel like oh, it. Yeah. It really made it feel like it wasn't a drudge, dr- mm-hmm. like just walking through mud although i did like it's not like other girls heroine i do like her not knowing how hot she is <laughs> okay yeah. i am so surprised you like this not because this this girl is not like other girls because she's like jesus <laughs> oh is <Hot> she jesus <laughs> she's watching i know she's she's uh definitively not i like that she <laughs> likes to read yeah. yes she does like to read. Okay. And she likes horsies, even though she won't admit it. Right. Well, she likes horsies because they give her underwear feels. <laughs> and we can't be having that, especially if you're married to a John Locke lookalike. You don't want to, yeah. like, get going. Yeah, I mean, I, yeah, you know, Elliot almost directly says that. Like, you're not, you're not joking. And I did, I was kind of like, whoa, I actually was not expecting that, given like also just how much, again, we said that Dorothy is very good at repression, you know? So. Oh, yeah. But she's like, I have to stop riding my horsey because it's making yeah. me too turned on. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you had to give it up, which again, like, if you're married to John Locke, you don't want, you don't, you just don't <laughs> want to even cross the line, right? Like, you don't even want to get started. Yeah. No. 
Um, I certainly appreciate, but don't know if I like a novel that talks about voting as much as this novel does. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Like yeah. <laughs> I could just go read Blue Maga Twitter if I wanted to learn about voting. It- Again, we're we're definitely we're mid nineteenth century Britain. We are doing liberalism hard. (laughs) We sure are. I mean, like I I for reals am interested in the history of liberalism. Although my my knowledge of that is much more about like embedded liberalism and sort of post war. Mm -hmm. You know that moment where Theresa May was really startled by there being socialists in the world because she was like, (laughs) the liberal consensus has been going on since the fifties, and it's like, bitch, no, it has not. Yeah. yeah. Where have you been? <sighs> it's a consensus. consensus. We all agreed. I wasn't there, but we all agreed. <laughs> there are no anarchists in this novel, spoiler alert. I feel very upset about that. There could have been. So yeah, I like an I like an anti-marriage novel. That's fun when you either get married to the blondest woman and she turns out to be a nincompoop, or your husband <laughs> dies vindictively which is always fun yeah um and and it also like i do get and appreciate its noveliness in the sense that it whether it prefigures other you know joyce or whatever is an interesting question but i do appreciate its bounded i'm not sure how to describe that but it's like it's very much between two covers right like there isn't other there isn't like a alt universe middle march yeah what and, and you know something to I, i'll throw out there too is that i you know again i like i i started down a, a path last week where it was like oh are we think starting to think towards modernism which i'm not i like i mean i was really thinking much more about like sociality than any kind of like character claim I, the only thing i think i will say is that i don't know where one would take the realist novel after that and that obviously people continue to read the realist novel but i'm kind of like george Eliot's like i've i've done i've shown you what this form can do and then so you get you know in the early 20th century maybe people like okay let's let's think of other ways that we might approach these questions you know right and like represent consciousness which is so different yeah um and then the only last thing i'm going to say which is just a genuine degree of like not confusion but question marks about the sort of historiness of this in the sense that I get that for a contemporaneous reader, it would be legible. But for me, it was kind of opaque. And so I wonder how people who are fans of this became fans of it. And if you know what's happening all the time, because I I know what a parliament is, but yeah. it's pretty opaque. And I really just want to know, like, if you love this, how much do you know about mid nineteenth century Britain, and do I have to know as much as you? Yeah, and and if you and if the answer is that you don't, you, that you know, you just haven't uh, read that much about it, then like, do you feel like you miss something by not knowing that? I think that's a great question. I mean, yes, I feel like I do because I feel like to learn about it would also be like more reading whereas with walter scott more reading just means like like goof goofiness yeah yeah it's silly and this is not a silly novel but but i i do i mean like megan as as much as you have uh it like as we've read the 18th century like i mean i feel i feel like you definitely like know that the general um like ideological direction these currents are going um which i think is that i mean that's that's mainly it the like specifics of the reform act and shit like that that i'll talk about i don't like i, I feel like that's much less um 
crucial than the general sort of like movement of history as a big fucking thing rather than like you know dates and specific um like movements and that kind of thing yeah i mean i did get that like those moments where she says things like you know we're mostly not aware of the operations of parliament like it happens behind closed Mm -hmm. doors i think Mm -hmm. is i was like okay like i get this i get that this is against the sort of great man theory and that it's taking place where it does is very against the ideological notions of you know this one dude did all of history you don't know who the king is if you're reading this but i've also failed if i found it so such drudgery if i you feel that i have enough data to go on and i still was like this is long (laughs) I I I, I want to watch Fuckboy Island. <laughs> the good instincts. It's so good. We'll recommend that in our show notes. No, we won't. <laughs> uh, I'll just recommend it to all of you because it's wonderful. Anyway, that's why I finished it. I was forced because you wanted to watch Fuckboy Island after. Yes. <laughs> Become a podcast host, uh, uh, folks. You get to you get to force your friends to read eight hundred pages. <laughs> but maybe in a year. I mean, it only took you guys a year to be like, "Yeah, Ulysses was really good." So maybe a year from now, I'll be like, "Actually, that book is fucking great, and I should yeah. read it again." Yeah, I haven't yeah, read yeah. Juneteenth yet, so no, I won't. Because if I <laughs> want to devote a lot of energy to a long book, <laughs> Ralph Ellison's unpublished work. Is where we're going. Anyway, Katie, why'd you finish it? Oh, I finished it because um, I wanted a sticker on my uh, my chart that um, tells me if I did a good job doing my stuff that day. <laughs> so, it's called a merit badge. <laughs> just, yes, I wanted a merit badge. Better miniseries than dead. This is the podcast where we talk about miniseries from 1994. Megan mentioned. It, it is. I, I, we've said this several times. It is a very good miniseries. That, it um, really is. Like, Megan, you mentioned, like, Ru- like Rufus Sewell as Will Ladislaw. It's like, that's a kind of an interesting choice. But, like, it, it actually did make me think differently about that character. Um, like, Yeah, I mean, I don't think he, I mean, he's a very good actor. I just didn't have the sort of, like, flutters of feeling that I expect. I, you know, I expected right, it yeah. to be Rupert Graves. <laughs> see every movie. See just see the Forster. Just see Morris. <laughs> I solved your all of your problems. Just see modernist adaptations. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. You hear that, folks? You don't have to read anything else. Turn <laughs> off this podcast. Turn on the television. Um I also finished this because I wanted to see with whether the landlords would be uh reinformed. And uh they were they were not in the way that I was hoping. But um, maybe in some fanfic that I'll be writing (laughs) later. I also, there are some excellent reasons to actually finish this, which Tristan got into. So one of them is not terribly galaxy brained on its face, which is that the way that Elliot deals with the universal to the particular transition, I think is really interesting. And Mm -hmm. there are a lot of these really lovely moments of character study that are kind of like there's there's a whole thing in the first half about bringing cameos back from italy someone's bringing cameos dorothea is bringing cameos back from her honeymoon trip to italy with her sister and so like there are tons of these these like character study moments that are kind of like a cameo like they're this like a sort of profile of something and then elliot will move to aphorism or like generalization about all guys who resemble amphibians not just this one that i've been describing so i think that is 
Again, not something that uh, is going to blow anybody's mind about a realist novel, but something that I kind of used a little bit also to think about the Puritanism because I still, my bell buckle hat is still squeezing my brain too yeah. hard. And there's other, there's a ton of other stuff like that too, where the toggling between the universal and particular interesting, I think. And I wanted to see what happened. So like the value, value thing, like your, mm. what do you value versus what's the value of something? Yeah. I was kind of interested to see what would what would go on there. And even the character, character stuff, which I know has also sort of been discussed a bunch in um in really great ways by like Deirdre Lynch, which we've talked about. But the again, the real reason is because I wanted to see what happened with my favorite friends, like my little pony, Fred <laughs> Vincy. Will he ever learn to manage his money? <laughs> Tristan, you'll tell us. <laughs> and as a person who is like between 70 to 90% potato at any given <laughs> moment, I did have to see what happened with the Polish newspaper man, Will <laughs> yeah. Ladislaw. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Ladislaw, as I said last time. Yeah. Yeah, no, I no, I uh, absolutely. And actually, Katie, just uh, I mean, one one thing that you said about like the, the value and kind of values question. Um, I mean, I'll get into like the the, the bolstrode uh, <laughs> uh, uh, drama, but yeah, I mean, he, like he that he he needs to be a rich man in order to like live this godly life is his idea that, and, and so you know he's got this like sordid past that he self justifies in that like he he has the like the financial value now to like have values in a way that's you know i mean it's obviously disastrous for the character but i you know but i i think is also part of um a certain well a certain brand of kind of like you know like puritan inflected christianity that the novel's very um critical of but also not wholly dismissive i mean it's a dismissive of the like the, the you need to be rich to like be godly thing but but you know it, it also doesn't just like it doesn't like throw out all of like calvinist thinking with with that uh that critique either Absolutely. Yeah. No, that's a great and interesting point. It's it's like worldliness comes into play in a way that is much different than it would if – I know in different time periods, but really like if the perspective of – if the perspective of one of our main characters were actually sort of like governing the novel in some way th mm -hmm. that's different than – um, than it is, but it's sort of like it's okay to want to ride your horsey and do fun boy things all the time and not be yeah. a minister, you yeah. know? Yeah. So today we are talking about this question of realism and the form of the novel and those as connected. We're talking about money, modes of belief, history and politics, institutions, our usual shit, how to be Marxists with a book. <laughs> so uh, Tristan, tell us what happens in the, the rest of the novel. I could not get this shorter than the last time because uh, it's 800 fucking pages. Um, so here we go. I know our listeners are are dying uh, to find out what happens with all the, the marriage romance stuff. I, and I, I mean, I, I kind of was dying to find that out. The the Casabon Dorothea will triangle and, and don't worry. Wait, we're there gonna... are things that came as a surprise to you. Well, I like that Fred, you know, gets it together. Like Katie said, was a little bit of a surprise. 
Yeah, I guess there aren't that many. But I but I wanted to see it happen. You know what I mean? Oh, <laughs> like, yeah, yeah, yeah. That, I totally get. But that is slightly different than I didn't know what was going to happen. Yeah, and like, oh god, you know this this actually gets back to a question when we were talking about uh, like the the web and like uh, uh, like futurity and not being able to like see a tra- like you can you can pass narrate the past but you can't predict the future. Um, and and like there that is that is like like yes, that's a hundred percent in this novel. But I think you were. You're right, Megan, that that is in some kind of tension with a like, well, yeah, like obviously the Dorothea Casabon thing isn't going to work long term. You know what I mean? So um, also he has to die because like we at least deserve the satisfaction of, you know, we know she's not going to like move out and shack up with some hunk. Yeah. Yeah. Because it's like against her principles of being never horny and whatever. And I just want to add, like, I know that that Foucault tells us that Victorians are obsessed with FAP for doing no FAP and that they invented <laughs> FAP. Uh, but Dorothea is aggressively not fapping. She is, although, you know, like book seven, eight, she we we get to I, there, there's like a, there's there's a little bit of a turn there, you know, <laughs> so, but, I'm, I'm just like mad on her behalf because she's had like, you know, laddish slav all around yeah. around this whole book and yeah. she's not doing Percy Shelley hours at him. Yeah, but right. So, yeah, we, we've got that Casabon, Dorothea, Will Triangle, and, and don't worry, we, we are going to get rid of. The first of those three, um, Casabon would, of course, make the world's worst polycule member. Um, <laughs> like, can you even fucking imagine? <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> then, but, but it's like, is this also a polycule where you have to be roommates? Because, yeah. oh. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I want to live with a man who's also a hard-boiled egg. <laughs> Who looks like a John Locke. Yeah, a cold, hard-boiled egg who looks like John Locke. Uh, the Lydgate, you know, what the fuck? Okay, uh, will Fred Vincy ever get his uh, fail sunry under control enough for Mary Garth to have him? I've already, like, spoiled that a little bit. We'll get there. I'll tell you how, how that all shakes out in the way that you probably are imagining that it does. But first, so last week we talked a lot about Middlemarch's epistemological and philosophical concerns. I said this week I would say more about Middlemarch as an historical novel with specific political concerns. So, Megan, that's I, mean, you, I think you're, what you were saying was uh, it's a difficulty. Well, and also like what what I need to defer as yeah. a contemporary reader and what I need to accept. I don't know. I just think yeah. that that's one of those something to think about. If I were a student and I were reading this, yeah, no, I I, I totally agree, and and so and I'll, I'll fill out that in the context, but I will start my summary of the second half by noting some of the main ways that I do think the historical landscape is present in the plot and in, in ways that maybe are kind of particular and specific and not just like grand trajectories. Unfortunately, that means spending some time with Mr. Brooke, all landlords are bastards, but, but it's, it's worth it. Cause, and th- this scene, I like this scene slaps so hard. He gets rotten eggs thrown at him. It's amazing. Um, Cause he had <laughs> literally one too many drinks. <laughs> yeah, yeah, literally one. One. Yeah, yeah, Sherry too, right? <laughs> so Middlemarch is subtitled A Study of Provincial Life. Um, and yes, that that is what it is, right? So last week we noted what kind of place Middlemarch is. It's this rural town in the English Midlands that is most definitely not London or one of the big emerging industrial centers, uh, you know, somewhere like Liverpool, a port city or, or Manchester, which at, at this moment, at the, you know, both, you know, well, by the time Elliot's writing, it's fully established as such, but like the heart of the UK's massive textile industry. The heart of weird regional accents. <laughs> Man, cutie it is, right? Or Liverpudlian. Yeah, those are such different accents too. Hey, New York and Boston yeah. have distinctive accents. Well, and 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 Philly too, right? <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> yeah, they all sound so good. <laughs> <laughs> they really do. 
yeah. So at, at the same time, we know that it, 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 it is like Middlemarch is still industrializing. And we, we know that via both the narrative centrality of Middlemarch's petty bourgeoisie, you know, Mr. Vinci, the ribbon manufacturer, Lydgate, the forward thinking new model doctor, Bolstrode, the banker. But also because Elliot tells us at several points that economic and political tensions caused by the transforming mode of production are starting to run right through the heart of this quote unquote provincial location. We're told early on that machine breaking is happening in the county. That's a very famous early 19th century labor direct action. Like the, that's what the Luddites were known for. And so like textile workers would smash um, industrial looms and that sort of thing to protest the displacement of artisans who had, had run the cottage industry version of textile manufacturing. Direct action gets the goods. It sure does, and that's and why really, we have a sabotabby. Yeah, no, and and I mean, I like, don't, like liberals who are like, oh no, um, like the reason you got reform acts and shit in the 19th century was because of that, you know. So, yeah, ruining um, private property is good. Yeah, they 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 didn't just ask, you know, Mister Member of Parliament, you know, pretty please, you know, like let's not have a 16 hour working day. That's not how it worked, you know. Change.org got that done. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You know what they did? They gave Kamala Harris like a hundred dollars, and you know, <laughs> and she said a sentence that made no sense whatsoever. And we all have an eight hour work day. Yes, that's how it. That's yeah, that's how it happened. Yeah. Yep. No. Uh, so, and, yeah, and, and early in the novel, right, there's had rigged over looming Catholic emancipation uh, when Catholics actually finally got like political rights and the 1832 Reform Act, at which we, we see that sort of hand wringing expressed in characters like this Tory vicar's wife, uh, Mrs. Cadwallader, and her her ally, uh, who, uh, the Tory aristocrat dipshit Sir James Chetham, who we'll remember from last week. Who's married to Dorothea's sister, Celia, who gets increasingly stupid in this book because she has a baby and then it makes her brain bleed out well yes and she's also married to eaton bro dumbass like yeah. you're not, oh you for know? sure yeah yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. elevating i just like the moments where she's like oh dorothea you'll dodo as she calls her which yeah. just pisses me off it's yeah. like just kiss the baby and you'll feel better and i'm like bitch what is your problem like not well, everybody it- feels that way and she also does the most annoying thing. She doesn't refer to the baby. She says, baby, baby. kiss baby. It's like, just shut the fuck up. You know? <laughs> she would be amazing online. Amazing. Oh my God. Can you imagine what Celia's Facebook profile would look like? The thing is, like, I absolutely can imagine every single part of it. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. And I just want to make clear. I absolutely adore my kid, but I yes. would never have said to anyone, "Kiss baby." No, I, I I post pictures of my kid all the time. It's it's great, but but yes, kiss baby. I insist that you kiss baby. Yeah, calling it baby, you know. Like, yeah, <laughs> Arthur. What a per- what a perfect name for a baby. Yeah, Celia. Don't don't worry. Celia's not coming back into the summer. <laughs> so um, no, she's not important. Don't worry about her. She already got married. <laughs> Yeah, 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 well. yeah. And right. And so despite Middlemarch's removed from the metropole, we, we know all of those big national and global forces are starting to reshape life there. Uh, so for instance, and this happens way back in book one, um, Mr. Brooke uh, gives this dinner party where despite being gentry, he invites all the, the petty bourgeois merchants and manufacturers in the town. And that really rattles people like uh, Cadwallader and, and Chetham. And this is a direct quote from the novel. For in that part of the country, before reform had done its notable part in developing the political consciousness, 
there was a clear distinction of ranks and a dimmer distinction of parties, like political parties, right? So that Mr. Brooks' miscellaneous invitation seemed to belong to that general laxity which came from his inordinate travel and habit of taking too much in the form of ideas. Um, okay, that's, so that, that's funny. Like the, Good job, Marianne. Yeah, it's you know, I, right? It, that's that that is a again, like what I said last week. I think parts of this novel are very funny. That is a very cutting pastiche on like Tory assholery, you know? Oh yeah. Um, I like the name Cadwallander because it makes me think he's a fish with a bad attitude. <laughs> yeah, and he fishes. I forgot he's a fisher. Like uh-huh. he, that's his that's his hobby. Yeah, yep. you're right. Yeah, wall-eyed. The political and economic tensions break through the surface of the text several times in ways that make us deeply conscious of these world historical forces uh, swirling around the principles. And often they do so in ways that show just how out of touch the old landed order is. So like Mr. Brooke is taking a reformist position. He's he's broken uh, politically with his Tory friends. Um, and like all of his friends do seem to be Tories. He wants to get elected to parliament as a liberal. But we always have the sense that his new political commitments are quite thin, both because, well, he, he's 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 an he's an idiot. Um, <laughs> And also, you know, part of why he's an idiot is he's like blinded by his own class position. And that lack of perception very much includes not knowing how he's perceived by the working classes. So, for instance, in book four, there's this scene where the son of one of his tenants has been caught poaching. And Mr. Brooke is like, oh, I'm going to be the kindest landlord ever. And, and you know, remember, in the 18th century, he could have had the boy hanged for this. You know, we're, I, I actually I, I think the Black Act by this point had been repealed. But that's still like the idea that like, you know, poaching would, was a capital offense is still very much part of the, the cultural memory and the, the, the way that these rich di- dickheads conduct themselves. And, you know, so he's like, oh, yeah, I'm going to be so kind. I'm just going to briefly imprison him and get his dad to give him a good talking to. And the dad amazingly is having absolutely none of it. The dad's response is so great that I am going to read it. I am not going to do the Midlands accent <laughs> while I do it. So it's a hard it's a hard one to to, to get to, you know, <laughs> to, to do. So, OK, so here's what we have. Never do you mind what he's done, said Dagley, who's the dad, more fiercely. It's my business to speak and not yourn. And I will speak to I'll have my say supper or no. And what I say is, as I've lived upon your ground from my father and grandfather afore me and have dropped our money into it, and me and my children might lie and rot on the ground for top dressing as we can't find the money to buy, which fuck yeah, man. Yeah, <laughs> for real. Yeah. And he also, like, as, as a party shot, tells Brooke to, uh, quote, go to Middlemarch to ask for your character. Like, basically, like, yeah, everyone fucking hate you. Everyone who's not one of your rich friends fucking hates you, you know? Yeah. So, which, I mean, great scene. Great scene. And, and like, Brooke, you know, he doesn't know what to do here. He just sort of runs off with his tail between his legs, like, because he, he, he just has no, like, that he wouldn't be, like, revered as the benevolent landlord. It's just, he can't, you know, he just, he, like, can't process what's happened. And then Brooke has these infuriating conversations with with Will Ladislaw, uh, who, you know, I, I noted last week, he ends up running the, the Pioneer newspaper is basically like campaign propaganda for Brooke. And Brooke thinks uh, Will is a political genius. Uh, we're, we're told he, he considers Ladislaw, quote, a sort of Burke with the levit of a Shelley. <laughs> <laughs> Just, uh, but Brooke himself is full Mayor Pete mode, uh, meaning like, I yeah. need to win this campaign by saying nothing. So he'll do things like, we need reform, but not too much. And 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 Will, who actually does seem to have like, you know, liberal, but pretty, you know, still, like fairly progressive politics, is just like tearing his hair out. Like, no, shit's changing fast. You want to be out in front of this. Like, and you, you have to actually support the reform bill and yeah. tell people you're you're going to. And they have this just amazing exchange, which I think, again, you know, liberal as she was, is it actually ends up being a fairly cutting critique of the Mr. Brooks style of, of rich liberalism. 
So Will says, uh, but that is what the country wants, else there would be no meeting in political unions or any other movement that knows what it's about. It wants to have a House of Commons, which is not weighted with nominees for the landed class, but with representatives of the other interests. And as to contending for a reform short of that, it is like as again, uh, for a bit of an avalanche, which has already begun to thunder. And here's Brooke. That is fine, Ladislaw. That is the way to put it. Write that down now. <laughs> we must begin to get the documents about the feeling of the country as well as the machine breaking and general distress. Just entirely misses the political yep. point and instead is just blown over that Will used the word avalanche. Like he just like, <laughs> like, like yep. pure style over substance bourgeois liberalism, right? I, I mean, you, but I will say, like, maybe it's my point of view, but I'm like, maybe there shouldn't be a House of Lords. Oh, okay. Well, okay, well that's not what he <laughs> yeah. means, but fine. Yeah. No, you know, and I mean, like, yes. Like, so Will is Shelley and up to the, except like Shelley was an actual fucking radical, you know, yeah, like right. his, yeah, yeah, yeah. as we talked with about way back when he, uh, well, anyway, recently with Caleb Williams, like the reason he and Mary got together, he's like, well, you God, what awesome anarchist. Let me hang out with you. You know, Will is not that. No. Will is definitely not that. But he's still like hot, and I mean, I'm not married to a liberal, so maybe I can't say marry a liberal, but like, <laughs> you know, better than being married to John Locke, I suppose. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. He doesn't seem to think that owning people is okay. No, and and he and he also does have the sense that if we don't straighten this shit out, we will have revolutionary conditions right. on our hands. You know, so he seems to know that the poor people have thoughts. Yeah. So anyway, uh, Br- Brooks' uh, future in, in electoral politics ends when he tries to give a campaign speech at the Hustings, which uh, is is basically a political meeting and campaign event. So that's what that word means. And he gets hammered beforehand, although Megan says, like, what, one glass of sherry too many. So he's a little bit of a, a lightweight. But but he is a gentry fuck off and just kind of mainlining sherry is what they do. <laughs> um, and, in the miniseries, he just like, he, he does a shot. He just like, whoop, like, just tips yes. it back. He does a little chug. Yeah, the, the miniseries tries to make it a little bit more respectable, you know. But uh, but he transforms kind of from a Mayor Pete vacuous self promoter at this point to like he be, he's like Chuck Grassley Twitter account incoherent, like what <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> pigeon found. Yeah. And this goes disastrously. So like the Tories, amazing scene, just amazing scene. The Tories have set up an effigy of Brooke to mock everything he's saying um, as he's saying it. And the crowd, which isn't Tory, I mean, there's a lot of like laborers here, but they they do hate landlords, just fucking loves it and starts egging the effigy and then the real Mr. Brooke too. And, and this is the end of his campaign. He kind, you know, it's, it's so humiliating. It's such a disaster. He has to fuck off on an extended vacation and then Will's job at the Pine near and soon afterward he has to go to political rehab <laughs> yeah exactly so one, one last place we see political tensions erupting through the surface in ways that do look like they have revolutionary potential so large adult son fred vincey um, <laughs> <laughs> who listeners will again remember last week when we left him getting his good friend caleb garth uh, heavily into debt on his on his behalf He's riding through the countryside and comes across Garth working with the railroad surveying crew. Uh, so like they're they're planning out a new railroad line, which is something that's starting to happen in the 1830s. And these farm laborers attack the surveyors and just like beat the shit out of them. And Caleb sort of makes peace, uh, but he, you know he, he like he gets he gets the violence to stop. But he he tells the the, the workers the railroad is good for everyone. Uh, but here's the reply he gets it again. Not not going to do the Midlands accent, but I think it's really important. Uh, the, the way it's written is really important. 
Oh, good for the big folks to make money out on, said old Timothy Cooper, who had stayed behind, turning his hay while the others had been uh, gone on their spree. I'd seen lots of things turn up since I were a youngin, the war and the peace and the canals and the old King George and the regent and the new King George (laughs) and the new one has got a new name. And it's been all alike to the poor man. What's the canals been to him? They had brought him neither meat nor bacon nor wage to lay by if he didn't save it with Clem in his own inside. Times had got wusser for him since I were a youngin, and so it'll be with the railroads. They'll only leave the poor man uh, further behind, but them are fools as metal. And so I told the chaps here, this is the big folks world, this is, but you're for the big folks, uh, Muster Garth, you are. Which is kind of like such a cutting sort of moment. Mm-hmm. He just called him a bootlicker. Yeah, he called him a bootlicker, and... Like Elliot wrote about the working classes directly, like when, you know, when Katie and I did the episode on Silas Marner, like Silas Marner is, you know, I mean, he's, he's, he's a proletarian, you know, so like, I don't know, it's just interesting that for this novel, she more chooses the petty bourgeoisie, but like in doing so, we're still aware at many points that like, there's a much larger group of people like around this who are starting to kind of like demand um, a say in the, in sort of political futures in a way that is, well, it, we're not, we're not Jade Austin's, uh, you know, like it, it again, Raymond Williams loved Jade Austin, but like class struggle from the other side of the park wall. We're not, we're not really doing that here, you know? Yeah. Okay. Sorry. That's a lot on the political landscape, but I, I think it's really important to keep that landscape in mind as we pursue the threads of the other protagonists. And, and I'll do that uh, some pretty quickly. So I mentioned Fred Vinci and Caleb Garth. Well, shit works out pretty well for Fred, shockingly. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, that was a genuine surprise to me. Yeah, I mean, right. Like, I mean, the Dorothy Casabon thing, which we'll get to, not really, but like Fred gets it together. Good, good for our big wet boy, right? He got I mean, a fever I, and it made his mom love him more and he lived. Yeah, yeah. Like, right? That's true. I mean, I think a part of that is that, you know, like strange. There's a bit. Elliot has a bit of a deus ex machina pattern where mm-hmm. shit just happens about three quarters of the way through the novel. And you're like, I guess this is how we're going to end this. So I just thought that that was going to be, I don't know. I, I thought it was good to happen that way, but maybe I'm just crazy. I, Basically, Elliot made you too tired to argue. Honestly, she did. You know, but for for the reading that this this is the 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 way you can't you can never see the whole web at one time. You know, I think it would be that like okay, sometimes shit. I was like, well, yeah, obviously, like in retrospect, right? We could see it coming to that. But other times it's like, what? You know, actually, I don't know. I would have thought that that fail son would have <laughs> would have got you know. But so like the Deus Ex Machina thing, I agree with. But like. That, you know, that also can be a comment on how, like, sometimes contingency just fucking, it's like, oh, uh, okay, I, like, all right, I guess that's the way the world is, not really where I thought it was going, but, you know. There's such a thing as failing upward. There is. Of course there is. Of course there is, right? Right, (laughs) right. That's how uh, most people get upward. Yeah, so right. So after that tense moment with the surveying crew and the farm workers, uh, Fred decides to ask Caleb if he can work for him. Um, and remember, Caleb is a, a land manager for the the big estates. Fred's parents hate this. They're like, damn it, we sent you to Cambridge to do the upwardly mobile shit and, and be the land manager would be a step down. Um, though it's clear Caleb is in a lot of ways more successful than the Vinci's. Like, so for example, when Fred's in debt, Caleb had the money to bail him out. I mean, it was, you know, uncomfortable, but he had it. Whereas Mr. Vincey, like, literally never has any spare cash lying around because he spent, you know, like, to keep up the petty bourgeois appearance, he's got to spend it. Like, you know, he's got he's got to live up to and probably slightly past his own means, right? 
anyway, so Fred works for, you know, so, uh, so, so Fred works for Caleb uh, and he, and, you know, he slowly convinces Mary that he's capable of not being a fuck off. And he eventually becomes the tenant of stone court uh, more, more on that in just a minute. And he and Mary have lots of kids and recede into a John constable painting. <laughs> Beautiful. Yep. That's how, that's how it goes in Elliot novels. So, okay. So here, here's a plot thread that I was not expecting. How did Fred get to live at Stone Court? So remember, last episode, I said he was supposed to inherit it from Mr. Featherstone, this relative who then ruined Fred's large adult son life by leaving it instead to Featherstone's illegitimate son, this guy, Joshua Riggs. All right. Yeah, we maybe see that coming. Riggs sells it almost immediately to Mr. Bolstrode, who, like all 19th century British new money bourgeoisie, is trying to buy his way into land. But soon after this happens, this ominous drunk, uh, J- John Raffles, shows up and begins shaking Bolstrode down for money. Because you see, Bolstrode, our moralizing Methodist banker, has this dark past. In a former pre-Middlemarch life, he had married a London woman who kept a pawn shop that was basically a place for thieves to, to fence uh, stolen merchandise. Also, here's another like weird-ass contingency. Turns out the pawnbroker is yet another grandmother of Will Ladislaw. Um, and Bolstrode like, tries to help him financially when he discovers this relation, but Ladislaw's like, no, you're gross, fuck off. Yep. You know, I mean, that like will will really, you know, he has some fail son qualities, but he really tries to not be a fail son in, in a way that, you know, it's a that's the Protestant work ethic right there. I don't know, man. I'm still swiping right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. No, for sure. Me too. We all know which way I'm swiping. <laughs> Does it say anything about being his being a short king with a big ass? No, but I would swipe <laughs> right anyway. <laughs> Uh, the, yeah, well, okay, you, you're swiping rights strictly for the, the, the Protestant work ethic part, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. And the possibility that the man knows how to put potato into different potato. <laughs> <laughs> Got to get those complicated names all in a row. Oh, yeah. yeah. Uh, we need more Ys, more Vs, a C that's surprising somewhere, you know? <laughs> Zs. <laughs> <laughs> So anyway, Raffles knew Bolstrode in those days, and he starts showing up periodically to blackmail him. So eventually, uh, Raffles develops delirium tremens again. He's quite alcoholic. Um, and his bedridden at Stone Court, Dr. Lydgate is confident he'll pull through if they don't let him have any alcohol, because obviously his liver is totally shot. But somehow Lydgate's instructions are disregarded. And like Bolstrode is sort of intentionally unclear with his housekeeper about like the treatment method that was prescribed. And so Raffles dies. Problem is, Raffles had told other people his story, so immediately the town starts to suspect Bolstrode of murder. Um, and again, they like pretty much everyone fucking hates Bolstrode because he's he's this pompous, like moralizing ass. But like, so nothing can be proven. But basically, he's sort of like kind of exiled, right? He's, he has to resign his leadership of the hospital that he founded, where Lydgate volunteers, um, and just yeah, like he he and his wife uh, like go go away to live at the coast. And as a last act of uncharacteristic kindness, he agrees to let his wife's nephew, who is Fred Vincey, uh, let Stone Court with a pathway to at least owning all the furniture and the non real estate property there. Okay, but what about like our real principles, uh, Dorothea Casabon and Tertius Lydgate? I'll, I'll actually wrap up Dorothea last, which is maybe like the opposite of how I should have done this, but whatever. In Lydgate's case, the bolstered Raffles drama actually causes all sorts of problems. So Lydgate and Rosamond's marriage has been going south for a while. Lydgate got heavily into debt to the tune of about a thousand pounds, which is is like eighty thousand pounds in today's today's money. Because oh no, he didn't realize how expensive marriage was going to be. I do think the novel is rather 
rather more sympathetic to Lydgate than Rosamond. Yes, um, I agree. Like, which, you know, in, in a way that I, I may be a slightly shitty, but I mean, whatever. These are also fictional characters. And um, it, it, she's just very superficial. Uh, she really turns on Lydgate as soon as she knows there's any money trouble. And even before that, like, you know, she she shits on medicine because it's not fancy enough. She she tells him that she doesn't, quote, think it is, is a knight's profession. It's quite that early scene, just like... And I know that Lydgate is is kind of a weirdo with his medicine, right? Because he's like, I shall discover the infinitesimal key to all body life or whatever (laughs) he says. And I got to cut people open, which is, you know, good medicine. But, you know, the other people in the novel are like, what the fuck is wrong with you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) But she's like, ew, you touch people? Gross. Yeah. No, and, and it's also it, it's like just this profound lack of curiosity on her part too, which I which yes. I don't think. And yeah, and and, and again, and like the, the curiosity is also what like brings like Lydgate and Dorothea into this kind of intellectual alignment. But yeah, so essentially Rosamond and, and Lydgate have very little emotional or intellectual connection. They were they were just two hot people who were hot for each other, <laughs> like in a purely physical way. But both compound the other's weaknesses. So there, this is a line from the novel. Ro- Rosamond, accustomed from her childhood to an extravagant household, thought that good housekeeping consisted simply in ordering the best of everything. Nothing else answered. And Lydgate supposed that if things were done at all, they must be done properly. He did not see how they were to live otherwise. So the novel definitely does place some blame on Lydgate. He's he's not fully honest with Rosamond until it's too late because of this kind of like bullshit masculinist fantasy of being in command of everything. And he also he's like a dumbass about finances, right? Like I mean, he, he has he has a real failsuit quality there. But but when he is honest with her, Rosamond is profoundly uninterested in anything that could actually help. So like Lydgate's like, fuck, uh, let's run out at the house. Um, and she goes around Middlemarch saying that the house isn't actually for rent. She secretly writes to Lydgate's asshole Barrett at uncle asking for money, which just goes fucking disaster. <laughs> Ultimately, Lydgate asks Bolstrode to bail him out, which Bolstrode refuses in this condescending, like, prosperity gospel way. He's like, bankruptcy will be good for your soul. Um, but, Thanks, Joel Olstein. Yeah, yeah, he's yeah, yeah he's definitely doing Mr. Joel, Joel, Joel Olstein there. Joel, Rich dad, um, poor dad. But then Bolstrode changes his mind when he thinks the thousand pounds will effectively buy Lydgate's silence in the whole raffles affair. Lydgate is all too happy to have this money, but he soon gets very anxious about it when he's like, wait, why did that guy die? I think Bolstrode may have killed him. <laughs> you can and die the- from the DTs, bro. Like, that is not impossible. Well, no, that that's why there is really no investigation. It's like, okay, the, the, like this guy's trajectory was definitely going in its particular direction. So it's yeah. like, well, did Bolstrode hasten it? And the answer is yes, but it's like, it's the kind of thing, there's just not any evidence to, you know, there's not any evidence to take it any further, like as, as a legal matter. There's something interesting about it too, the, fa- the fact that he... Like he has to do something that he wants to do anyway. The only way to save him is to is to essentially save him from himself. Mm. Yeah, which I think mm-hmm. is a is a nice little tied in a liberal bow. Oh, it, yeah, it is. And it's all, like you talked last week about like the uh, it's a, a novel like written by an ex Christian, but that who's that still has or like an ex evangelical, I should say, but who still has like kind of some of that worldview. Like, because you're, you're right, it is like a, a nice little liberal bow. And then closely the related like liberalism out of a kind of like Puritan way of thinking, too, right? Totally. Yeah. Well, yep. and it's being like there's such a there's such a distinction that this novel helps us see between like secular and 
anti-religious, right? Like secularism is important here, but that doesn't mean the abandonment of any like ideology based on religion or, or a consideration of it. And this is like, man, fucking Church of England. I don't even know what to say about them. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, right. I mean, and, and like, yeah, and, you know, the 21st century, like they're one of the most like, like li- liberal and in a legitimately good way of Christian dominations. I mean, they were very early on into, you know, like marriage equality and things like that. They're also particularly at this period, but even still very much allied with those kind of like landed class and, and shit like that. But yeah, no, I, right. And, and, but I think that's right about like the secularism, but like anti-religion be an anti-dogma but and again this is a very liberal impulse like retaining the the quote-unquote like good parts of christianity like yeah. okay so like charity like you know caring for like the poor you know so, some kind of like idea of like a progressive society you know but but like not getting super fixated on like kind of like dogmatic um controversies and that sort of thing right do we have seven hours to talk about secularism? I know, Jesus fucking Christ! Like, I mean, uh, <laughs> I would like to actually. <laughs> so long. <laughs> I would like to. I still gotta get through fucking Dorothea and shit. Like, it's I, and, and yes, like we could do we could do like several episodes on fucking secularism in this novel. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, it's uh, yeah, it's. Great. Are you both trying to kill me? <laughs> <laughs> I'm only trying to hurt myself. <laughs> So yeah, oh, right. I, I'll get to Dorothy in a second. Just what happens with Lydgate? Yeah. So he's like, oh shit, did Bolstrode do this murder? Um, and like the town also like they they already don't like Lydgate because one, he's aligned with Bolstrode. Two, he won't give them their damn patent medicines. Like he's this yeah. you know he's this pretentious asshole. Um, and so they're like, I, I bet he sure did help Bolstro do that murder. And their suspicions are further raised when Lydgate sort of finds himself like having to help Bolstro leave a, a, the civic meeting where Bolstro gets forced to resign for public life. He he like has this anxiety attack and Lydgate feels bad because basically no one is helping him. And so he's like, all right, let's let's get out of here, bud. And then everyone's like, ah, you're both murderers. So, yeah, I really so, like, though, that he's like, you can't have your colloidal silver because you just need to take a nap. <laughs> Yeah, 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 yeah. It's like, or like, maybe we could prescribe slightly less opium. You know? yeah. <laughs> it's for not, special he, occasions. He's not fully anti-opium either. Like there is, like with, no. uh, like part of the with the what raffles. You call it? Yeah, yeah. With the with the it is that he's not doing great. And so Lydgate is, you know, like, uh, okay, well, you can give him a little opium, but don't go crazy with it. And then they, of course, go crazy with it. <laughs> but anyway, okay, so r- wrapping up here. Lydgate's reputation is partially saved by Dorothea, who has come to really like him ever since the onset of her terrible husband's heart condition. One, she she thinks he's a great doctor, but they also, you know, th- that curiosity I talked about, they're, they're both kind of like kindred knowledge seekers and, and tryhards, right? And, and like, Backing up, uh, so soon into the second half, Casabon dies, which honestly, I have not rooted this hard for a literary death since Jonathan Harker back when we did Dracula. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Except Casabon actually obliged. <laughs> you know, he dies, massive heart attack, fucks off. And halfway through, which is great. I was it like, is. thank you, Marianne, for not waiting until the goddamn end of this book to knock off this asshole. Yes. Oh, he had to go. He I would really not. Did. I would not have wanted another 400 pages of Casabon. And yeah, and like no one is upset about it. Nobody's <laughs> like, mad. Like Dorothea goes to stay with, you know, Celia and, and her more horrible husband. And, and they're like, Dorothea, it's been 36 hours. Shouldn't you stop wearing the morning gear? And 
she's basically like, LOL. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and, like, and, and no, of course she won't leave it off early because she's very moral. Even though Casabon, it turns out had added a codicil to his will that says Dorothea loses his estate. If she marries Will Ladislaw, like fuck off. You know, <laughs> like, I love that when uh, Celia's like, do you have to wear that dumb hat for the rest for a year? <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah, it's great. That That's a great Celia moment. So Dorothy and Will have this long, very uh, repressed flirtation, uh, like, and she can't act because too moral. And also Casabon kind of implied she was sleeping with Will, which she's like, oh, that's fucked up. Will, because he rightly hates his dipshit dead cousin and thus a lot of contempt for all this. Eventually, they do get together, though, with one final crisis where Dorothea goes to see Lydgate. She goes to Lydgate's house to basically tell Rosamond, no, he didn't do murder. He's a good guy. And she sees what she thinks are, are Will and Rosamond in some kind of intimate moment. Um, like, and, and they, Will and Rosamond also had this kind of like long sort of weird flirtation with Lydgate's apathy and consent for much of the novel. Like Will, Will and Lydgate are kind of like professional friends and Will would go over and Rosamond would play piano and he'd like lie on her carpet and Lydgate's like, that's fine. You know, I'm a, I'm a, for, I'm a forward thing. You know, I'm, I wouldn't object to a polycule, you know, <laughs> like, yeah, uh, for like, sure. he's, he, he's a, he's, he's a, he's, he's a modern man, right? He's groovier than he's given credit for. He is. Yeah. yeah I like him more than the novel wants me to like him. Honestly. I agree. Okay. I, yeah. I like, I, I wish that character had been written a little more sympathetically than I think he is. Mm-hmm. I think it would have made it a little bit of a more interesting character. Cause otherwise I am like, I don't, this is weird. Like character logically aligned with what Elliot wants me to think, but that's like sort of unusual in a novel, right? That it's like you reading against her characterization. Yeah. I, I, I did feel that way as well. I did. But uh, but so but yeah, R- Rosamond tells her no. Will said that he could only love Dorothea. Dorothea gives Lydgate the thousand pounds, uh, so he's clear of, of obligation to, to Bolstrode, um, because basically she's like, well, there's nothing else I can really do with this money. And finally, she's like, you know what? Fuck this money and fuck Casabon's land. I want to fuck the hot Shelley dude. Yay! They marry. Alameo owned Casabon. Uh, <laughs> um, Lydgate becomes rich, but never makes any grand discoveries and dies of typhoid at fifty. Will gets himself elected to Parliament, and and here's where we leave uh, Dorothy. And I'm just going to quote the ending of the novel, which I think is quite sad in ways, and I, is making some claims that I'm not entirely sure I have a full handle on. So, okay, so th- this is this is the end of the novel. Sir James never ceased to regard Dorothea's second marriage as a mistake. Like, of course he didn't. And indeed, this remained the tradition concerning in Middlemarch, where she was spoken of to a younger generation as a fine girl who married a sickly clergyman old enough to be her father. And in little more than a year after his death, gave up her estate to marry his cousin, young enough to have been his son, with no property and not well born. Those who had not seen anything of Dorothea usually observed that she could not have been, quote, a nice woman, else she would have not married either the one or the other. Certainly those determining acts of her life were not ideally beautiful. They were the mixed result of young and noble impulse struggling amidst the conditions of an imperfect social state in which great feelings will often take the aspect of error and great faith the aspect of illusion. For there is, th- there is no creature whose inward being is so strong that it is not greatly determined by what lies outside it. A new Teresa will hardly have the opportunity of reforming a conventual life any more than a new Antigone will spend her heroic piety and daring all for the sake of, her bro- of a brother's burial. The medium in which their ardent deeds took shape is forever gone. But we insignificant people with our daily words and acts are preparing the lives of many Dorotheas, some of which may present a far sadder sacrifice than that of the Dorothea whose story we know. 
Her finely touched spirit had still its fine issues, though they were not widely visible. Her full nature, like that river of which Cyrus broke the strength, spent its cha- itself in channels, which had no great name on the earth. But the effect of her being on those around her was incalculably diffusive. For the growing good of the world is partly dependent on unhistoric acts, and that things are not so ill with you and me as they might have been is half owing to the number who lived faithfully a hidden life and rest in unvisited tombs. Mm-hmm. The end. I do think, you know, Katie, your point about the general and the particular is just completely in these paragraphs, right? So, like, the turns she makes from she was not nice because she did those things. And then the next paragraph is like about a young and noble impulse struggling amidst the conditions of an imperfect social state, right? She doesn't even transition that except by a paragraph break. Which is kind of extraordinary, especially considering where we've been for 800 pages with only like breaks into the, I mean, there are plenty of breaks into the wider social world, political conditions, uh, scientific change, all that stuff. But there are the only these moments of shifting into that general narrator voice, I guess. And this is like a wait at the end of the novel that's kind of supposed to tell you that either you weren't like you've just seen something maybe you weren't supposed to see or you'll never fully understand what you've just read or that or that sorry it's 800 pages but it has to be because life is other people are a mystery you know I don't Mm know and then of course to the micro again right so it goes from like like an Antigone of something which which for me was one of those like uh, did I read that play right that seems weird Um, yeah to you know a tombstone that nobody visited which is I actually feel like very satisfied by the plot of this. It ties up its loose ends and then it has to end in the way that just makes me go like, what? Yeah. And it, well, again, yeah, like throws us back to that, the, the prelude too, where we're talking about like St. Teresa of Avila. She's no longer a, a model that you can live by because you know, the way, the ways the, the, the social works now, um, that the, the unhistoric acts thing too. And, and just the, mm-hmm. like, you're like, so you're a, Okay, so right, it it wants it wants to like do something with this tension between the world historical, which it's made like a pretty effective case throughout. Ultimately, does shape all of our individual conditions, but then like turn us back to like the individual and what you can do, and and like that is very liberal, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I will say that, you know, I finished this novel a few a few weeks ago. And I've been thinking about that ending ever since even though I, I find it troubling and not all that satisfying. But like, that is a good side. It's, it's working through some shit in a, in a way that is uh, really interesting, even if I, I mean, I yeah, I, I agree with you guys. I'm not I, I, I don't have my head around it yet. Is it weird if I said something like okay go with me it's the anti-romantic ending yeah 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 i think that's right which is interesting given that like the the romantic in a like an ideological sense is so present in that like like will ladislaw is kind of the hero of 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 this not you know among several i mean i so so starthea right but like it it is it's not anti-romantic though i agree that is an anti-romantic sort of impulse there at the end I mean, I think I also mean like in the sense of the romance, like the the yeah. the yeah. the form. Yeah. Yeah, that yeah, yeah, yeah. The death of a character has to be like as grandiose, like a marriage or a ma- marriage and a death 
close the romance and in this to say like a tombstone nobody visited is like an anti-romantic gesture in the sense of of the form yeah yeah well and it's it's well it's like kind of pre pre pre-romantic in that it's kind of like thomas gray's elegy in a country churchyard right there's a there's so there's a ton going on with that and i just it brings me a little bit to our discussion about the novel form or something or what Elliot thinks it's doing or what it should be doing because I think that part of it is what she's kind of saying is I'm extrapolating here, but you'll never actually understand history if you're dealing with people whose tombs you'd want to visit or um, you know, like people who are remembered in that way in any way publicly. The the vast majority of everyone who's died has no tombstone at all, let alone the people who are dead and do. Like the unvisited grave is 99.999% of all of it. And so to look to graves you visit or saints or historical figures or something, you miss everything of life that makes history or something. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, again, that sort of anti-great man, but also anti. I think I. It's just because my I'm I'm sort of like stuck with Wuthering Heights that that's why I also think of it as anti-romantic in a sense that it's like some dipshit stands over the grave of the deceased rotting polycule and watches <laughs> the bugs flitter about yeah. while pontificating about how lovely it is that yeah. this guy had to shove in on this woman and her husband's grave. You know what I'm saying? So it's like, (laughs) no, it's, you know, Dorothea for all that she gets the romantic ending lived a very ordinary life. Yeah. Well, and it's not that fucking ordinary, right? Her husband's a member of parliament. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like, no, that's a good point. I, but, but the, but that's not actually seen, right? That's, that's an exposition. Yeah. yeah. It's like being married to like oh the wife of the of a guy who is in the house of representatives. Yeah. No, yeah. that's fair. But I guess but my point is that like yeah, 100%. And like that that is that is largely an unhistoric position. But I mean even if you're like what like fucking Nancy Pelosi's husband, right? <laughs> you know, like, but, <laughs> I'm just thinking about poor but, Chaston right now, you know. I'm like I spent a lot of time thinking no. about that poor guy. Yeah. But I guess what I'm saying is that like that is still a very, very rarefied sort of social position, you know, but like, but not but it isn't one that's like, yeah, like, like busting in on history with a capital H, right? Right. It's not it's a elevated social position, but it's not an elevated like characterological position, right? It doesn't make her a better person or something. No. And and back to your point about romance, it also does not make her like the heroine of romance. Right. right. Like, she doesn't yeah. get to be a princess. Right. No. Right. Nobody's painting her. Or, or no, no, people are painting her because she's a pretty lady and people want to draw her. But the reason why they're making a painting of her husband is because he happens to look like Thomas Aquinas. <laughs> yeah, 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 <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's right. Yes. Right. Right. Back. Yeah. Yeah. No. Right. And, and what, yeah, like the, the whole, the, the shit in Rome um, early in the novel. But when you said like that, they, they are painted or I was thinking that like, yeah, cause they haven't invented the daguerreotype yet. Right. And like, that's what you did, you know, like um, they're, not they're the, close. They're right on the fucking edge. They, they are. Yeah. And I'm, I'm going to get to those technological changes in, in just a minute. Yeah. But, but like, they're not, they're, they're not painted her as like fucking Catherine the Great or something, you know, right? Like, <laughs> <laughs> I wish I want that for. I mean, I don't want that for her because the whole never mind doesn't yeah. matter. But like, yeah. I really do care about Dorothea a lot. I agree. I agree. Yeah. And I, I have to tell you, I the, the like tryhardness I did 
fear that I was going to find her an annoying character. And I really don't. I mean, I have a lot, like, she's got some ways of thinking about the world that are somewhat anathema to my comic sensibilities, but I, sure, sure. I have a lot of, I have a lot of sympathy for her and I find her, I find her an engaging um, and very sort of attractive character. I feel like I would be a giant hypocrite if I were like, oh, this lady's too school for me, you know? Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, that, that's it too. I mean, she's actually probably a lot more in alignment with me than I would care to uh, care to admit, you know? But Even if it's the old version of all of us that's like- I'm going to read 150 books for my worlds and shit, you know, right? Right, but, exactly. Yeah. Can one item be two books? Ugh, God, <laughs> shut up. Okay, Context, please, not seven yes. hours on secularism. <laughs> I beg of you. No, 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 no. Or, or, do, I, or you could, though. Actually, I think that what I had prepared for context goes well to this because I'm going to sort of take us back to like what the fuck history does mean in this. And I'm, I'm actually going to like bear it on the, the, the husting scene where Mr. Brook gets egged um, as, as a way to maybe kind of wrap all this up. It really is a good scene. I'm uh, never mind. I'm on board. It's it's it, it's it is one of the best seeds that I've encountered in 19th century British literature. For know? sure. So, so yeah. So uh, like again, like so much shit happens in this novel. You know that capital H history does feel like it, it is at a remove often. Um, and it's easy. It can be easy to sort of forget this as a historical novel, but it 150 percent is. So again, it's published in 1871 and 1872. But it's about the early 1830s. And yeah, 40 years doesn't sound like all that much historical distance. Like that's that's one Tristan or Megan unit and like 0.9 <laughs> of a Katie unit, right? Yeah. Um, but, uh, but 19th century Britain changed massively in a way that it's kind of hard to overstate. So like we 21st century humans often congratulate ourselves or freak ourselves out about how much the contemporary world has changed with the internet and smartphones and shit. But I was thinking last night about what the 1830 to 1870 shift look like and i mean railroads you know not a thing to to you know cr- crisscrossing the whole country and then suddenly like yes you know like you can yeah you you could get you know from from cornwall all the way up to the, the top of scotland in a very rapid period of time you know by by the standards of the day the age of sail gives way to the steamship which cuts literally months of travel time across this global form that is the british empire um, i love that your first two history has changed a lot are choo choo and toot toot I mean, you know who you're talking to, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, like the, the fucking telegraph. I mean, which like, yes, like smartphones. It's like, wait, wait, you you could you could get a signal instantaneously across the fucking Atlantic Ocean. Like, you know, this is the 1850s, right? Um, factories, which in the Middlemarch period still largely would have meant manufacture. So like large groups of workers who were mainly doing handcrafts and in big warehouses. So chapter 14 of Capital, um, they're now, you know, steam powered behemoths. So we're chapter 15 of Capital. Um, speaking of our boy, Carl, yeah, in 1830, <laughs> there's no communist manifesto. By 1870, both the promise and the failure of the 1848 revolutions have happened. Engels has published The Condition of the Working Class in England. The first volume of Capital has come out. Slavery has been abolished throughout the British Empire, not very far from when the novel is, is set, 1833. Um, and finally, the fucking United States. And, you know, at, at, at the same time, of course, the British government has claimed direct rule over South Asia, and Victoria now styles herself Empress of India. And, and, <laughs> Sorry. and I, t- I told both 
with a view. Uh, my brain was doing 19th century. We didn't start the fire lyrics, which I won't. I will not subject you to that dorkdom other than to say I tried an embarrassing long period of time to make the condition of the working classes in England jive with the chubby checker psycho Belgians of the Congo uh, meter. Um, so. Did you try with the origin of the family private property in the state? Oh, that might work, actually. I'm also, just saying, because I last week, I believe I cited it as women work too hard and work is you dumb. You did. You did. I also like that my dorkdom psychosis has started to infect you as well. Uh, <laughs> okay. No, I think about Mr. Engels all the time on my own. Thank you very much. Who started the fire? <laughs> Hey, the other thing depends. It's like, look, I know you mean, like, I, you know, much like Katie is a mid Atlantic uh, guy, I, I have a non ironic appreciation for a lot of Billy Joel's music. We didn't start. No, the- no, no. Oh my God. No. no, Billy Joel's great. Go listen to River of Dreams. Okay. It's really fantastic. I totally agree. But my thing is, We Didn't Start the Fire is such an obnoxious, boomer ass, fucking reactionary anthem. You know, that. Uh-huh. I, I'm mad that's where my brain went, but you know, whatever. I'm a huge dork. As, I as, quit. I, I quit the podcast. <laughs> Not even once have we ever had Public Enemy as our closing music. <laughs> I mean, I be I'm the all... enemy you want to see in the world. I don't I, know what I, I'm saying. I, <laughs> I'm just like baking in the the fiery hell heat, hellish heat of all of this billy joel affection <laughs> suffering makes you holy so now you're becoming more holy too i regret to inform you po- uh, so point being <laughs> middle march is middle march it's been a long a bit, bit, bit a long long march here um uh, so middle march is, is very expansively deceptively so trying to think through a time before the modern of 1870 so a time fully within living memory, but that feels to Eliot's contemporaries as though it's on the other side of this massive set of transformations, which it is. There's the economic and technological transformations, of course. There's also some extremely important and obviously closely related, because we're commies, no argument there, political transformations. As I've said, one of the background plot elements in Eliot's novel is the 1832 Reform Act, which greatly expanded the franchise. This was actually superseded by a second Reform Act in the 1860s that, that did that even more so, although you know still limited to men. But, but so Middlemarch is kind of at a double remove on this particular axis from the era that Eliot is writing, uh, is writing the novel in. But the 1832 Reform Act kind of enfranchised the petty bourgeoisie, um, which might explain why that's the class that is sort of central to this novel. Um, you no longer had to be a big landowner to vote. The new industrial cities finally had parliamentary representation. Also, pocket boroughs or, or rotten boroughs were abolished. Um, these were these notoriously corrupt entities that were basically the patronage of some rich asshole. A, a place called Old Sarum is mainly is maybe the most infamous one, um, which was this ancient settlement near Salisbury that by the late 18th century had like two actual voters, and yet it still had an an MP. Meanwhile, nobody lives there, but they have a vote. nonetheless. Exactly. And meanwhile, the entire fucking city of Manchester had no member of parliament. Uh, It's why Montana has two senators. Yeah, yes. It's why government in practice is always insane. Yes, it is. And and honestly, so many ways in which the US Constitution is deeply fucked is because it came from fucking Britain. (laughs) With a little bit of, of, of Scottish madness thrown in there just a little bit uh-huh yeah for sure yeah and there, there's this great exchange between Ladislaw and mr brooke where mr brooke says we must get you a pocket burrow and Ladislaw is like dumbass 
We think those are bad. <laughs> those are immoral, you absolute dum-dum. Also, you want people to vote for you to abolish that shit. What are you talking about? You know, oh, you mean maybe he doesn't know what he's fucking talking about and deserves to have rotten eggs thrown in his head? Yeah, I mean, yes, uh, that's exactly right. <laughs> So anyway, like um, this historical background really inflects everything in the novel. And and to close, I just want to mention a brilliant reading of that amazing seed uh, with with the egging. And this this is uh, by my former professor Elaine Hadley and in, in, in her terrific book Living Liberalism: uh, Practical Citizenship in Mid Victorian Britain, where uh, Elaine traces transformations in liberal ideology that occurred alongside this greatly expanded franchise. So one of Hadley's contentions is that mid-19th century liberal thinkers were really invested in liberalism as a mode of thought that could be like taught and developed, like teaching people to be disinterested, altruistic, the public as this abstract consensus, um, universal subjects like white dudes with at least some money that then sort of uh, let you figure uh, 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 like particularized subjects, uh, the poor women that were the objects and not subjects subjects of political action. And her, her reading of why the Brooks speech goes awry is that Elliot is, uh, this is, this is uh, Elaine Hadley's claim, Elliot is really voicing a sharp skepticism to that whole project, um, that you could have something like rational public opinion in a coherent and productive sense, and that someone like Brooke could voice it. And she starts with noting the argument between Ladislaw and Lydgate, where Lydgate is like, shame that Brooke is so stupid. And Ladislaw responds, doesn't matter. We just want the policy. It's fine if politicians are dumb. And I just, I'll just close with Elaine's, uh, briefly, with Elaine's take on on that scene. So basically, she 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 contrasts like a satire versus the, the straight up mocking that the effigy in that scene is doing. And so she says, uh, mimicry as a, a variety of political burlesque contrasts with satire as a form contra- as form contrasts with content. Political satire would expose Brooke as a hypocrite. It would measure his policies against his practice, a reformer without reforms. This is the preferred genre of 18th century political critique, where the dominance of contract measures integrity in terms of follow through the criterion of whether or not one does what he promised he would do. Mimicry, by comparison, duplicates the formal properties of the oratorical scene in Effigy and Echo, accentuating how the newly isolate candidate can be anyone and thus no one at all. Put another way, mimicry raises questions of identity, not action. What perhaps is registered in other portions of the narrative as characteristic tics of Mr. Brooks' distinctive verbal stylings, a sign of his idiosyncrasy, are, in their duplication throughout the scene, emptied of their temperamental specificity and reproduced as empty repetition. As the echo repeats the unmotivated stutter punctuating Brooks' sorry account of his own cosmopolitan detachment, (laughs) we detect a by now familiar crisis for the politics of liberal opinion as it circulates in the public sphere. What is the grounding or stabilizing authority of an embodied opinion? When Brooks' admirably disinterested observation with extensive view lurches toward a comical indifference toward the distinctions among Adam Smith, Dr. Johnson, and the Baltic, we discover that Mr. Brooke, quote, stood his ground no longer. I mean, God damn it, that is a great reading. Yeah, yeah I know. I, it's like I, I don't have anything more to add because that is amazing. And, and it did, it, you know, it, it, um, like we've, again, and I, like, I, I am after this and Silas Moore are very much a George Eliot fan. So, like, dunking with some love. I, we have dunked on her a bit for like the, you know, the liberalism and not, 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 you know, following Marx and Engels. But, like, I think that that is a really, that's a way that shows us that, um, it's not like an uncritical version of that. Like, it is sort of skeptical as to the claims this new sort of ideological mode is is making um in a way yeah i mean i, I kind of i read you know i read that years ago when the book came out and i just I, 
you know, went back through it. It was like, actually, you know, I now I have to go back again and think about what I actually do think of this fucking novel, you know. Willful Subjects opens with the mill on the floss, you know, like, mm-hmm. yeah. People think carefully about Elliot in terms of uh, a, a thoughtful politics. Yeah, yeah, no, definitely. And I just say that because I think Sarah Ahmed is uh, the best human being on earth. <laughs> um, do we want to, what do we want to talk about more? Money, institutionality, belief. Let's talk about religion. I hate that I, that's me now. Hey. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, what I've, I've, I've said so fucking much about this, but whatever you guys want to talk about. I just like, you know, I'm just, I'm going to be so angry with myself until we read like Portnoy's complaint or something. <laughs> Yeah, Katie, well, tell no, us what to think yeah. about. Re- Sorry, go ahead. No, no, no. I don't know what I'm saying. So no, I was, ahead. I was, I was gonna say just what you're saying. Like, yeah, Katie, I, I, like, religion does feel very important, and we've not talked that much about it. You know, both Dorothy is Puritanist and Bolstrode's asshole Puritanist, and then the whole like liberalism to certain theological backgrounds. What, what, what should we think? <laughs> but also, I'll just add one more thing is that all this, like, I think that the the clergy in this are really odd, right? So it's like, there's all this weird shuffling around. And then there's a the guy who has a crush on Dorothea, but he doesn't really. But it, yeah. but it's sort of like, right? So for sure. I'm, oh, not Dorothea. I'm so sorry. Mary Garth. The- yeah, Mary Garth. Yeah, yeah, fair, yeah, fair, 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 brother. fair brother. Yeah, he also likes uh, uh, Mary Garth right now. Um, who I also mix up with the other Rosamond somehow. I know they're opposites. <laughs> okay, so I think there are, and I have no idea what anyone sh- or should think or what I think, but I have germs of something, which is I tried to come at it from a variety of different angles. So one of which is the institutional angle, what it means to be a professional clergy. And so in that case, there almost is no way of, you you wouldn't say things like the secular arm of the church because they're so intertwined in this. Mm -hmm. Isn't that Uh, like a, am I being, uh, I'm not being dismissive when I say like that's small town vibes though, or at least like that's the impression that I get as a reader. No, totally. You're absolutely right about that. The thing that I kind of struggle with is that you're supposed to never be able to kind of separate the two things, but you can, but not in any institution or character that's actually like through Dorothea, you can kind of you can get somewhere. She's totally disconnected from the church at all, but she's the main religious thrust of the novel, I think, in in some kind of real way. Because Bolstrode, I it seems like what he's done is like reverse engineered a way to be rich and hide how you've done it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like he really so, has done some like fucking prosperity gospel shit. Like you were you weren't joking about that. No, fully. And so I wonder also about how about the religion and character thing, because it is a way of he's like he's like LARPing almost. And Dorothea is in a way to her. her, The initial way she gets introduced is comparing her to or, you know, comparing her to St. Teresa and that that bookends the novel. Mm -hmm. And that's an incredibly classically it's an incredibly classic religious or Christian, Catholic, Protestant thing, but it's weird that you do it with a saint and a like a uh, like a Protestant who wants to build churches for 
poor people. You know, like they yeah. are aligned, but at the t- there's there shouldn't be an affinity there. A saint that- and a Greek tragic heroine. What yeah. doesn't make any sense? Yeah, yeah. And then what she wound up doing with her life in the way that it's described, in fact, has no reference to anything she actually cared about because all of those things wound up sort of being goofy, like the or at least in at the beginning of her life, like yeah. giving giving herself to her husband's book about nothing, <clears throat> theory of everything. It's almost like nothing. Like fuck, I, this is it's a it's a great question. I have no no real conception. I would like to go back. <laughs> Why were there so many pages? Well, and I just <laughs> like similarly was like, I guess I better look at every page flag to find the thing I was looking for. Yeah. But there's this funny, you know, like. Otherwise, we don't think of of the clergy as acting like this is a calling. But there's this moment where Fred is bitching to Caleb Garth about like, I don't want to do it, man. I don't want to go into the goddamn clergy. And Caleb Garth is like, you must love your work. Yeah, yeah, the, the, vocation. the, the, the vocation, the calling, yeah. And that's weird. That's yeah. weird. Because it doesn't, well, we know that the other clergy have to have a calling or whatever, but it doesn't feel like they're all that committed to it. <laughs> Elliot's fucking doing Max Weber, like, you know, 50 oh years before God, he would write no. it, you know? Like, yeah, the, the, he, yeah, like Caleb Garth's, like Caleb Garth's vocation out of Calvinism has actually become, like, you must have a production career you know like it's yeah oh wow love your work man that's just like a bananas again like that is a hallmark of liberalism yeah a different version though i know that that's like a later version but the the whole thing with the garths too is that mary garth doesn't want to uh marry frank because she's just basically like well how you're in debt like it doesn't matter how much and you're and you're aimless like it, it yeah. d- doesn't matter if you're in debt in and of itself. It matters that you're a dumbass who who did it to my dad. But also, sort of more than that, for her, it matters that he's not a bootstraps puller upper. Mm-hmm. Yeah, 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 yeah. But yeah. even when he gets that gig, he's not a bootstraps puller upper because Caleb Garth was like, "Oh, you know what you could do is this." Yeah. Which is which is why the whole thing was bullshit to begin with, even though Mary Garth was totally sincere. That's the sincerity problem, I think, yeah. you know? Yeah. yeah. The sincerity yeah. problem is difficult because that is a Dorothea thing, is how deeply, profoundly sincere she is. Well, yeah, for sure. And and I I would say like I mean the other the other layer too, I would add, is that I think like ultimately what matters about religion across the board in this book is its social function, right? Like, and so, and which has a lot of different variables. I think for like, uh, you know, Mrs. Cadwallader and the Tories, it's like, you know, mainline Church of England, like what this actually means is Britishness, right? Mm-hmm. And then, and and Bolstrode, like, like, no, it's about theology, but actually it's about capitalism for him in the same way it sort of is for, for Caleb as well. And then we have Dorothea who like, you know, I mean, is quote unquote religious, but ultimately that more means like, like this, this sort of like liberal, uh, kind of like charity or like social engagement perspective. And so it's not like saying religion has a social function is not either immediately a good or bad thing. It just, it is what religion, it, it is yes. like the, the the character of its force in the world, I think is where the novel lands. You know, and that really makes me think, and again, I know that I really operate in a lot of ways out of 
with the limited historical knowledge here, is that a given person's individual commitment to religion is a lot less important than its structuring function. Yes, a hundred percent. Yeah, yeah right. Definitely. If it makes up the if it makes up the social world and to a certain degree also makes up the state, although that's not what Elliot is worried about here, it's like less reliant on copying Elaine action than identity. Mm-hmm. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's it's really interesting to think about its social function, which sort of includes the government, of course. And the requirement of any sincerity, because for it to have a social function, you need that. You need mm. people to, you need some Dorotheas, right? Like people don't do that stuff if they don't have some kind of actual commitment to it. But then when you get to, I think, Megan, maybe correct me if I'm steering the wrong way, but it's like you can then have, once you have government, once you have authority, once you have, regardless of how provincial things are, once you have power, you can sort of, you can dissemble in a way and not disrupt the broader social function of religion. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, it's just, this is a hard thing for me to wrap my head around as someone who's so outside of the field. And that's why I've been anxious about being a reader of this, is taking it uh, according to the rules that she sets out, which are so historical. Yeah. No, but I mean, I, like I, you know, the three of us, like, yeah. And, and this is, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a hundred years before, before this novel. Um, I, I have the, 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 the nitty grittiest, but I've, I mean, like the, this, this conversation has really taught me a ton about, I don't feel like you were missing, you know, anything that you crucially needed to be able to mm-hmm. figure out what the big mechanisms that it, it's dealing with you are. I can't believe I'm saying this, but I sure learned a lot by reading that Sir Walter Scott guy <laughs> about yeah, how to be yeah, a different, for real, about yeah. how to be a kind of reader. Yeah, no, yeah. And, and yeah, 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 yeah. I, I, I totally see that. I totally see that. Um, and from Lukacs, right? Like, yeah. really, it's it's yeah. through that mechanism of reading. Yeah. But the Victoria novel has so many motherfucking rules and that is a hard thing for a non-expert reader and i think that that's like something that our audience should know too is that if you struggle with this part of it is that the victorian novel occupies this position of here it's 50 billion rules yeah no totally and and yeah i mean i you know like i when we read like mid 20th century stuff i i am i'm very much it's like there's like i i don't i don't know the history here and i mean to some degree it's it's since it's it's like more recent like maybe that gives me some advantage over if it was a like much earlier period but still it's like you know yes i mean as expert of a reader as you are you're not going to be an expert in in, uh, like you know you like all of us are not going to be an expert in, in everything and and yeah that's something you have to struggle with for sure should we be playing a game? Because I, I can't believe the book is less interesting than talking about the book. Sorry, but it just is. Yeah. It's not like we're lucky when the book is amazing and the conversation is amazing, but yeah. the conversation mm-hmm. is, well, it's more interesting. It's not that it's better than the book like D.H. Lawrence, but. Yeah. And <laughs> as I said, too, I, I, I really did like this book a lot, but it it was it was a challenging read <laughs> for sure. You know? I do um, get it. I get why yeah. people love it. I yeah. sure get why people write about it. Oh my god! Yeah. Yes, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's an extremely interesting object, and and with you know, I mean, as as long as it is, like, I mean, again, I cannot emphasize enough that fucking husting scene where he gets egged it's hilarious. is amazing. <laughs> it's amazing. <laughs> it's really good. But it does. You know, there are long novels that that 
fly. I still think Caleb Williams. Yeah, I just couldn't yeah, believe yeah, how yeah, how yeah. gripping it was. Yeah, it's not quite that long, but it's a long book. How yeah. long is is Tristram Shandy? That book whips. Uh, six, about six hundred pages. So two hundred pages shorter. Oh my god! Yeah. Anyway, well, let's play a game. I are, we've already lost the game from last week in which ass pants have to be yeah. retired from the Shark Tank repertoire. <laughs> it's very sad. It's very sad. Uh, this week we're doing something potentially even sadder. So Tristan very kindly shared uh, with us, <laughs> there's a podcast about Middlemarch as a guide to personal finance. Yeah. And there is no group of better people than those who are concerned about modern day personal finance. Oh, Agreed. yeah, absolutely. I have to take credit to uh, my, my wife here for fighting this, but we were doing a, a, a 700 mile drive and it's like, oh, let's listen to some Middle March podcasts. And, and she she discovered the, the personal file. So th- thanks Big to Christine thanks. for uh, allowing us to uh, to dog on these people. That's my favorite. I love when people search Pride and Prejudice podcasts and come up with ours. And it's yes. like, oh, you are in for it. Yeah. <laughs> You're in for something. Quick You're Google McTeague. Something. Ah! Yeah, what? No. Just don't use that app to search anything. But, of course, you know, this uh, big, big thanks to Christine for also putting me back in touch with my, the cool, fun person that I was in middle school who really liked to watch Susie Orman on CNBC. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I didn't know that you could be stranger than I already knew you to be, and yet here we are. Oh, there's more where that came from, and I'm going to say less of it. <laughs> I already disapprove so much of the music that has been <laughs> nearly universally discussed on this show. <laughs> Life's about, uh, I don't know what. I read Middlemarch. Your, your Spotify enough. must be rat-fucked. I can't even imagine. Oh, it's absolutely insane. Yeah. <laughs> um, but the but the game, uh, our, the squawk box of the day, is to... Decide uh, whether characters in Middle March or these uh, or financial experts or you would rather have, you know, kind of managing your money. Uh-huh. So and I'm going to give you a little information here, too. You can't just you can't just decide, you know, without uh, without knowing knowing something. So we have a matchup. Our first matchup here is Rosamond, Vinci, Lydgate. OK, so this is a woman whose wealth management strategy is to marry a guy who really lights up from the inside when dissecting the fetal pig in 10th grade biology. (laughs) Yeah. Mm -hmm. If wealth is measured in 19th century medical goo, he's very rich, but he absolutely cannot pay for your trip to Raymore and Flanagan. So don't ask him. You have to trick him. So if Rosamond... (laughs) Or we have Susie Orman. Susie Orman. Thanks, Susie. Chicago's thank- own. Yes, <laughs> that's right. Chicago's own Susie Orman. So I found out through a heartbreaking Yahoo Finance article, Susie Orman, who said, I have a million dollars in the stock market because if I lose a million dollars, I don't personally care. <laughs> I don't personally care. So this... This person who doesn't care about losing a million. What is how many? What? (laughs) What? How many monies do you have to have before you don't care? 
man, those those self help personal finance books must. I mean, that's that's quite a fortune she's sitting on. So you know, million million dollars is chump change. Yeah, go you go to AC with it. Yeah. So who? Uh, so the question is, who do we trust more here? Yeah. Are you letting Are you letting Rosamond manage your portfolio? Yeah. Or are you going with Susie? Oh man, she's gonna um, lose a million of your dollars. Yeah, yeah. I mean, oh, that that is a great question. I I think I do have to go with Susie though, because I like. I mean, it's the, the reason she's so cavalier about it is because she did like fucking success win the self help <laughs> market. Whereas like Rosamond, it's like you know, we, like Rosamond, we have zero dollars, and she's like, let us throw the grandest dinner party of all time. <laughs> <laughs> you know, right. like, so, um, it's like, He's what, like yeah. Lydgate is like, we might be okay, and she's like, you know, we could have some veal though. Yeah, 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 yeah exactly, exactly. So I mean. It's like I just as long as Susie Orman understands that I a million dollars is not chump change to me. I feel like maybe I I don't know. (laughs) I'm going to go with Susie Orman for a very different reason, which is that she's essentially admitting by saying that that money is fake. Yeah, true. Yeah, there's a there's a there's a there's a bit of a um, a uh, uh, you know a a tacit Marxist line. Well, so. like to say like the stock market is bullshit and money yeah. is fake, even yeah. though it's like, of course, not the effects of money are as real as anything in life. Yeah. But yeah. there's still a little bit of a like, because it's fake, because it's not, right. it's in the sky. You put it into the stock market. And as far as I'm concerned, it's just like, oh, well, I guess it's owned by Warren Buffett. I don't fucking know. <laughs> I don't right. have any money in that market. Dow Jones owns it. Mr. Jones. Oh, Mr. Jones, got it. Mr. Ira, mm-hmm. yeah, Mr. Doctor, four hundred one k. I don't, I don't have a pension because the neoliberal yeah. invention of the four hundred one k has decided to fuck me yeah. over. Yeah, the Roth IRA, named after former Delaware Senator Bill Roth, oh, who uh, at the Delaware State Fair when I was a kid, uh, you, they would hand out a, a fan, like a hand fan, that said, "I'm a Bill Roth fan." So funny. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's great. Wonderful state. Um, yeah, no, I, I I agree with that, Megan. Um, and yeah, Susie Ormond, her dad, uh, her dad owned the deli that's two blocks away from uh, me. It's not um, good. It is, <laughs> and it's not. Been there. Bad delis and no money. Yep. Um, I can't believe no one is going with, yeah, we have zero dollars, but what if we had less dollars than that? Yeah. I know. I mean, there is a way that I also approve of that because, like, run up your credit cards because who gives a flying fuck? Yeah, but like, yeah, yeah. the the expansive, you know, structurally, I think just behaving as though money is fake is dope. Yeah, yeah, that's I, I like that. That that reasoning is better than the one I came up with. Yeah, but all roads lead to Susie. So <laughs> thrilled. Our second matchup is between. Okay, so we have Frank Vinci, um, Fred, right? Oh, Fred. Oh, my God. I keep I've been calling him Frank the entire episode. These are the same name. It's fine. (laughs) Thank you very much. No, because Frank is a (laughs) cat is an Irish Catholic who belongs in a fucking Sir Walter Scott novel. Yeah, right. Frank Oswald. Yeah, anyway. (laughs) Well, I made him more of a boob than Fred Vinci, if that's possible. I you could roll him down a hill, though, a little bit, you know, Um, (laughs) (laughs) Frank, you can't even. Uh, but a uh, Fred, Fred, Fred. His name is Fred. That's his name. It's Fred. Uh, Fred Vincy, my favorite guy, who fucked over his father-in-law through horse finance, and then became a property manager so he could marry a woman with a square face. 
Mm-hmm. Money? I don't think so. Or, but here's your other choice. Noted personal finance expert and the only guy who is possibly dumber than Frank Vinci with money. Or Fred. 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 <laughs> Fred. His name is Louisa and I don't know what's happening. <laughs> well, your other option is Jesus Christ. That's right. That's right. Jesus Christ. Uh-huh. Jesus H. Christ. I am referring to the uh, Forbes article called um, Jesus's Terrible Financial Advice. <laughs> Drive the money changers. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, which. <laughs> yeah. Fuck poor people. Jesus' yeah. terrible advice. Yeah. <laughs> so the article is not, it's, um, it's really good. It's really good. It's not. It's about a, it's a review of a book by the same name written by a guy with a PhD in accounting who loves the Lord. So, um, here's, here are some of the, and it includes the greatest close reading of the parable of the rich dumbass, uh, which is like, <laughs> Which is the guy who's like, I want to have so much grain. When I build a big enough pyramid for all my grain, I'm going to retire. And God's like, I'm going to kill you. <laughs> um, Just going to let it molder in there while people starve. Yeah. 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 <laughs> but th- this this person, I just want to draw attention to the close reading of uh, of this parable. Uh, was, the, was the hoarding of grain a defensible strategy from a financial point of view? Very unlikely. Hoarded grain provides no return on capital. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, um, yeah. yeah. Uh, but he, the author does admit that there are certain specific circumstances under which hoarding commodities such as grain may make sense. Okay. Are you taking your financial advice from Jesus, a guy who only had sandals, not even a, not even a loafer? Yeah, I mean, like, well, again, I like, I, I you know, Jesus, like, let's go communist Jesus, um, for sure. But like, if <laughs> I, I, so I mean, I guess the is the goal to just you know fuck uh, fuck this money and uh, you know go uh, go go start a cadre somewhere or or to to do capitalism hours. I'm mean, doing capitalism hours. I I do. I mean, unfortunately, this this accountant who loves Jesus but thinks he's bad with money is is right. You got to go with Fred, who did the total fucking fail son success win. Just like I'm going to be terrible with money, but I'm going to be like cute and affable, and so eventually people are going to give me a sweet job. It's like that, you know win you know (laughs) yeah i agree i think that he truly is the channing tatum of george Eliot's uh novel yeah 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 be cute and affable and a career you shall have hey put that on someone's tombstone (laughs) you were the channing tatum of a george Eliot novel (laughs) Yes. (laughs) yes exactly exactly i think we all i think we all know what time is on that one Okay, here's your last. Here's your last uh, matchup here. Dorothea, of course, our lo- lover of the Lord. Here, heroine of some of these 800 pages. Yeah. Note taker to the ugly. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Note taker to the ugly. Yes, her her success as a gold digger is rivaled only by her success sniffing out hot new literary talent. Um, <laughs> yes, her most brilliant financial decision, of course, was to give up her bald, pale husband's fortune. John Locke, mm-hmm. uh, to marry a, a Polish guy who um, who runs a newspaper. Sweetie, he's not Ben Franklin. Okay. <laughs> he doesn't have tertiary syphilis. <laughs> Give him time. 
Give him time. But I have a formidable contender, which is TikTok. TikTok, <laughs> all of it. Yeah. Um, apparently, it's where upwards of 30% of Gen Z gets financial advice, according to a survey of seven college freshmen in Intro to Microeconomics. Now, that's a survey. Um, yeah. yeah. <laughs> that's, that's a survey. So there's a way more feminist method that uh, TikTok kind of one TikToker advocates, which is uh, people write into this person who I'm not going to name with financial questions. One woman wrote that she and her husband, uh, her husband makes 80K, she makes something like 60. And uh, so, how do they become millionaires, right? Well, TikTok can figure it out. The way is that for 21 years, she puts away her entire salary and they live on the husband's. Then, and I can't stress this enough, 21 years later, a period, an interval of time during which usually nothing goes wrong, you will have $1 million. <laughs> Are you, uh, what if your, what if your car has a headache? One million dollars. What if okay. he loses his? Never. Okay. <laughs> who, are, who are you taking, Megan? I'm definitely going with Dorothea yeah. because throwing away your husband's fortune is funny, and I love Will Ladislav, and yeah. I love <laughs> being. I I really do love as a proxy being a brunette library dork who marries <laughs> the hottest dude. I I totally agree with all of that. I think Will is 100% worth it. Also, until like Dorothea literally could not give away her like she keeps trying like what if we yes. build peasant cottages and like no it's I mean she's like yeah. fucking like Warren Buffett like she's tried to throw <laughs> money away and it's just like she keeps getting more until she finally says like I'm fuck it. I look, I just you know, I just I just have to like sign this away cuz um you know, I want I want that uh that 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 Will Lattice law. Um, I I actually yeah she yeah she sounds like a fucking rock solid financial genius even if she's not trying to be. You know? Also, so. I think that like she would be fun. You know, like you get you get her married to a hot guy and and you know she feels yeah. a little bit more m- more fun. You get like eight sherries in her. I bet like Dorothea can hang. Yeah, totally. Well, now I know where I'm putting all my dollars <laughs> on the characters from Middlemarch. Jesus. 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 <laughs> Jesus is bad at money, Katie. We have established this. Didn't I even read the title of the article? Jesus, don't be a communist, you boob. Yeah. Low Love anti-Semitism. Capitalists are terrible. Also, apparently, really stupid. <laughs> that's why it's how Fred Vinci's uh, success winning, yeah. But. Yeah. <laughs> Well, thank you for coming along on this journey with us, dear comrades. It was, in fact, a journey. This has been Better Red Than Dead. You can find me on Twitter at Teslasaurus. You can find Tristan at TJ Schweiger. You can find Katie at Katie Crywo. You can find the show on Twitter and Instagram and Facebook at Better Red Pod. And email us at betterredpodcast at gmail.com. If for any reason, then not 19th century Billy Joel lyrics would you would you are you anticipating my death 
Would you rather I just left this podcast entirely? Yeah, I I, I have to agree with Megan there. It said that I no one else needs this sickness. You all who who picked who picked the intro music and was it a <laughs> anti racist radical communist skinhead soul band from the nineteen seventies? Oh, it was Tristan. They listen to a lot of that in Delaware. <laughs> <laughs> and speaking of which uh our music is lev bronstein which is not written by billy joel <laughs> but by sure? the red skins and used with their permission our logo is created by jane bonsack of jb design and content rate and review and subscribe and if you review us and send us a picture of it a screenshot to our email we are still doing a promotion, which is you get buttons and stickers, and they're really cool. And my mom wears her button that says book jerk. <laughs> and Aww. it's adorable. Rate, review, and subscribe. We are going to take a mid-season break for a couple weeks to get our heads together. But when we come back, we have Last of the Mohicans, more punishment, followed by the <laughs> kind, the newly published novel version of The Man Who Lived Underground, by comrade richard wright i love dick um <laughs> and we have william wells brown's clotel after that so thank you comrades 